Welcome back to the Small Fleet and Owner Operator Summit. I'm John Kingston, FreightWaves Editor-at-Large. If you're a small fleet or an owner operator, you probably don't have the luxury of pushing your fuel costs on to the shippers via a fuel surcharge. So you have to make sure that you are booking rates that can cover your fuel costs and still allow you to make a profitable run. But you're not oil experts, you're truckers. And what has gone on in the past few months has been just dizzying. Today, we're not going to talk too much about Russia and supply and demand. We're going to talk about how the sausage gets made. How does that pump price get to where it is? And with me to talk about it is Gary Beavers. I've known Gary for a long time. He's the president and COO of a company that bears his name, Beavers Co. Gary has more than 30 years of leadership experience in marketing, product branding, and business development in the transportation fuel industries. He's a downstream market expert, and he's here to talk to us about that how that final number that sits up on the street and uh, showing you what you've got to pay at the pump, how it gets there. So, Gary, welcome to the uh, Small Fleet and Owner Operator Summit. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. So, ultimately, the price does start with crude. Uh, if the price of crude goes up significantly over time or goes down significantly over time, that's going to be the biggest factor in determining the price of gasoline or diesel. And we're going to talk about diesel today, correct? So the crude is the biggest factor. It's approximately 50% of the cost of the finished price, varying depending on what the price is. So it can be frustrating, I'm sure, though, for people to hear that the price of crude went down and they didn't hear that they didn't see that the price of diesel at the pump went down. So let's talk about what happens after crude. As we know, crude gets acquired by a refiner and then it's processed. But in the pricing, in the pricing world, it seems to me that the next important number is the price of the ultra-low sulfur diesel contract on what's known as the NYMEX, what's also known as the CME. I guess it's the NYMEX division of the CME. How significant a number is that? Well, it's the midpoint basis. So from the crude that comes out of the ground to the refinery, there's shipping. And from there, it goes to what we would call a terminal, which is the rack. And you have the market price in between that, leaving the refinery, getting to the market. But we then again have more transportation, wholesale number, and uh, then ultimately the retail point that your guys would be fueling from. And each of those nodes in that supply chain affect the ultimate price. All right. Well, let's go up the chain. Let's get back to that CME NYMEX contract. How important is it? Does the market, the, 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 the professional traders, they trade in that? And ultimately, it's what, who's, there, there's a long, there's a short. It's all a balanced market. Can people who consume diesel assume that that is a fair market? It's a fair market because it's the last place you're not factoring in local transportation and margins. And it is less volatile than what happens at the pump because the pump can change every day. Some stations now change multiple times a day. So when that NYMEX number goes up, Further downstream at the retail part, they start raising their price if the NYMEX goes up. If it goes back down, they don't lower their prices quickly, but they're watching the NYMEX. That's the key thing they look at. They're not looking at crude. The distance from crude all the way down could take 30, 60, 90 days before it's going to really affect the local price. Right. So let's let's note that the uh, CME contract, I'm, I'm going to recall it the CME contract because I always write that when I write a story about diesel, but it is basically, it, it was the traditional NYMEX contract, the New York Mercantile Exchange, which was ultimately acquired by the CME. Um, so they, they, they trade a physical barrel in New York Harbor, correct? Yep. 
But if it's like the NYMEX, the NYMEX also reports future trades and future numbers, which is an estimate. But a lot of times on TV, analysts will be referring to paper trades, I mean, paper contracts, not the physical. The physical is the number you've got to look at. So you, you talked here several times about the rack price. Define the rack price. So once it leaves the refinery to a pipeline, gets to a local loading rack. So it's just like a warehouse that your guys would go pick up their goods from, except they're all open, they're all a commodity, and they're all a different price basis. There's no Broil Hill sofa that's the same price in all markets. So each rack is more uh, variable in its pricing, because once you leave the, the, the market number, you now have to factor transportation. So how far is the rack from the source? And then how far does a truck drive in order to put it in a retail tank? So those two transportation pieces vary radically as you go around the country. 1,300 fuel racks. And like if you're in Mobile, Alabama, there's five racks within 50 miles of your local rack, each of them at a different price point. Some of them are in different states, but a truck can go pick from the lower rack and then deliver it locally. And and so usually the retailer is going to keep the margin. He's not going to give it away. He might lower his price. But so there's a lot of racks. I'm in Houston. There's 23 racks in Houston. But in some markets, there's only one rack. Like in California, you're, you're locked into one rack pretty much. Right, so on the, the the racks also are identified by the company that operates them. So there's a Valero rack, and there's a mobile rack, and there's a shell rack, et cetera, correct? Well, that's old school. Uh, almost all of them are independent, although Valero still owns a few racks. They're mostly owned by MLPs like Kinder Morgan. And in a typical rack, there'll be up to 40 or more suppliers selling through that rack. So it's just like a third-party warehouse, right? Collection point. And then Valero will be in the rack, but so will Sitco, so will be uh, Williams, and each of those will be at their own basis price. So the game is for wholesalers try to buy, pull the load from the cheapest supplier at that rack. Right. Now, that's not possible if you're what's known as a branded retailer. So if I'm an, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a Shell retailer and I fly the Shell brand outside my store, I have to buy Shell branded material from the rack, correct? That is correct. And the rag, the brand tends to charge a couple of, it's like a franchise. So they're going to charge two, three cents a gallon for their branding. So if I'm a shell retailer, I'm already paying a few cents a gallon more typically than unbranded, which is Wawa, Sheets, Bucky's. But the caveat is the market inverts. And so at times the brand is actually at a cheaper price because all the way back up to the major, they've got excess product. Everything's supply and demand at every node in this marketplace. Who's long, who's short? Yeah, when, isn't it, isn't, when, when it inverts, isn't it usually a case of a severe shortage because the, the branded suppliers want to take care of their own and the unbranded, their, their view on the material that goes to the unbranded rack is, well, they just might have to pay up. They're going to protect the guys that sell their brand. Isn't that really the way I've always thought about it? Well, that's a large part of it. Yes, there's some other factors, like Houston has a hurricane, right? So Shell, make sure that Shell dealers have the availability to get Shell gas. If they have any excess to sell to the unbranded market, they're going to charge more. So most inversions are around events, right? But in some cases, the refineries for a brand 
just happen to overproduce. And the only way to make in this connected supply chain for it to go away is to be cheaper than the other guy. So at the wholesale rack, a brand will price below market temporarily. It's not going to stay there. Right. Now, racks, I know years ago when I first started, racks changed once a day. They may may not even change on some days. That day is long gone, correct? Yes. If you were old enough, they used to change back in the 80s. They changed once a month. Then they moved up to once a week. And then by the 90s, they were once a day. And now in some markets, not all, but they change up to eight times a day. Hence, a company like Opus Index has eight different indexes, 6 a.m., mid-morning, mid-afternoon, close of day. And, the, and so the rack is changing. So it makes it complicated for the wholesale segment to buy at the cheapest price. Like some guy thinks he's ahead of the game and he sends in early morning truck drivers show up at 530 and by afternoon, the market was soft. So everybody drops their price. And it also goes the other way. Swings, intraday pricing swings as typically as much as five, 10 cents a gallon. Wow. I mean, that's that's pretty, I mean, what a contrast from you said it used to get, get changed on, on a weekly basis. Let's talk about how they set their pricing. You did touch on this earlier, but I wanted to go back to that. There are, you said there are thousands of racks and there are, you know, there's a rack in a big city like Atlanta and there's a rack in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, but there were really only five or six key sort of physical markets in the U.S. where professional traders uh, buy and sell barge quantities, pipeline quantities of, I won't even call it wholesale at that point. We'll just call it spot material. What are those markets? Well, those markets are largely physical. So we're in Houston where, you know, like the majority refining for the whole United States exists. So racks aren't usually having a problem getting fuel. I worked in California where there's only a handful of refineries, and that's what I would call a balanced market. It's called Pad 5. There's five petroleum area distribution points in the U.S. The Northeast is great because you can buy from Canada. You can buy from New York Harbor, which is the one you really hear traders talk about. So you do what's called arbitrage. You get contracts with multiple markets and take the cheapest one. You can even buy from Chicago and ship it over by rail or water form. Right, but I want mean, I want to interrupt here, and make a point because we um, that that the, the rack markets will look to a specific physical market usually for their guidance. So obviously, the Houston rack would look to the Houston market, but the Atlanta rack, for example, which is a very active rack, will look to the Houston market as well because their product is supplied primarily off of Colonial Pipeline, which comes up the Gulf up from the Houston area. Correct. Correct. So the spot market basis would be the same for Atlanta and Houston, but the distance here is less than 10 miles to get it in Iraq. And I don't remember Atlanta, but it's over a thousand miles. So a pipeline tariff. So they're paying the local spot plus the distance to get it there. Same thing would be true if you're in the Northeast and you're in New York Harbor. That's the shortest distance. But as you ship it upstate or ship it to another state, you're paying a transportation premium. That's what becomes the rack price is the spot plus transportation. Right now, I want to uh, I want to kind of go back to a point you made earlier about how frequently retailers change their prices. Uh, you you said frequently. I think a lot of people out there might not agree. They especially in this volatile market, they hear constant reports of prices going up, prices going down. Uh, I know that the spreads between some of the, the the spot moves and the retail moves 
have blown out because the retailers just can't keep up with that. Uh, sometimes the price has been plummeting and the, the retailers can't move down. Retailers, it seems to me, are not really set up for this kind of market to move that quickly. Yeah, they're probably moving quicker than they ever have, but not as fast as the rate in the spot market or even the rack prices. Well, you have two classes of retailers. You have the big guys like Wawa, Sheets, Racetrack, and they encompass their own fuel supply. They even buy on the Colonial Pipeline. So they're more integrated. Then you've got all out of 160, 180,000 retail locations and truck stops, you have 90,000 of them are an independent little guy on a street corner. We used to call him Bubba. Now we would call him Mohammed, right? So they're an individual guy who buys a station. Well, he's not sophisticated usually, and he's not connected enough to manage the spot and wholesale to fluctuate his price. Typically, if you take that secondary group, the normal group that people fuel at, they're looking across the corner at their competitor. They might draw one mile radius as they drive to work, but if Bubba across the street raises his price, Muhammad's going to follow him up. If Bubba lowers his price, Muhammad follows him down. If Bubba leaves his price the same, Muhammad leaves his price the same. They do, most of them now have NYMAX on their phone, but they do, it's not an instantly connected decision. They're looking, if Bubba lowers his price, Muhammad's going to lose customers, right? So it, it's a game. They all tend to stay within a couple pennies of each other. Right. It used to be said that the only thing you needed for pricing the retail uh, operation was a, a ladder and a pair of binoculars. You don't need the ladder anymore because presumably the sign is electronic. Uh, and uh, if it's right across the street, you don't need a ladder. I mean, you don't need the binoculars because they're right across the street as well. Uh, just one last question because amazingly, we're running out of time already. Um, when you look at what's happened to retail prices, let's say over the last three months, do you think that they have been moving at a kind of fair rate compared to uh, compared to other the, the broader market moves, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or is somebody really making out like a bandit here? Usually, the people who make out like a bandit tend not to be the retailers. Uh, what do you see happening right now? Wholesalers, traders have the ability to make big deals, well below market. A little retailer guy has none of that. He's his bait pricing based on what he has to pay, and he's usually only given one choice. Even if he's unbranded, he doesn't get to buy from 40 people. He's got a couple of suppliers. Sometimes it's one guy, and whatever they charge him, he's adding his margin. His only control is his margin. And surprisingly, when prices go up, the retailer's margin gets compressed to the point at times they're losing money. Not crying for them, because then when the margin, when the wholesale margin, the price he pays goes down, they keep their retail margin up to recoup. I mean, and they that's their pricing model, right? I have relatives who are farmers. They do the same thing. Right. Let me point out something else about retailers. Gary, you, you and I first met when I used to go to uh, meetings of the Society of Independent Gasoline Marketers Association. I have not been to one of those meetings in quite some time. But one of the last ones I went to was in 2008, right before that big price spike. And uh, these retailers... You know, even though they were selling their product at prices, these eye-popping prices like they'd never been seen before, they were just livid about the price because they were not making any more money. And the people who were coming in had less money in their pocket after buying fuel that they couldn't go into the convenience store and buy stuff there. So that's really where a lot of them make their money, correct? 
Yes. And uh, in Texas, you definitely make your money on inside what we call the box because retail margins are traditionally low because it's easy to get a fuel license. Land is cheap. Labor is cheap. So margins are a lot of times run down to five cents a gallon. Try running a business on that. But the year you referred to, 2008, is our worst year ever, started in the $1.50 range, got all the way up to $4 a gallon, put over a 1,000 trucking companies out of business, and then dropped down into the 3 and finally down in the $2 range. So we started the year dollar plus, mid-year, whatever it was, four, over $4, California 5, and then it dropped down to two dollars some and it stayed at two some for a long time that was the price it should have been all along it was difficult year and the sigma members you referred to clearly half of them were on the edge they weren't taking a salary they maxed out their loans they cut any expense they could and they all joked and laughed that they made their year in august because that's when the price just dropped. The wholesale, the retail, I mean, the price they're paying, right? So then they made margins of a dollar or two dollars. They all got sued by the states and they were gouging. All they had to do was show them their books and show that they were selling gasoline at times 20, 25 cents lower than what they were paying. So the, it all came out at the end of the year. They just, like my relatives, the farmers, you know, you're based in a commodity business. And at times you're making money and at times you're losing money. You do what you can to stay in business. So there's not a lot of gouge in the business because there's so many supply points. It would be very easy to prove a lot of, lot of wind about it, a lot of lawsuits, lot, but at the end, they all end up normalizing out. So it's a tough market. And as you said, the two guys on the street or across the street from each other, you know, okay, so let's say they got together to quote unquote gouge and drive up the price. The problem is that one of them may also be across the street from yet another guy, and he's across the street from another guy, and it's a whole chain. I mean, you'd have to have the most incredibly well-organized conspiracy ever, <laughs> and it would have to go on for miles down a main drag to make it work. So, listen, Gary, we're out of time. Unfortunately, I love talking to you. Uh, we, we've, our, our guest today has been Gary Beavers, uh, the uh, the head of a company called Beavers Co., but really kind of a legend in the retail and wholesale fuels industry. I've known Gary for many years, and when we were putting together something for the uh, for the uh, small fleet and independent owner operators, some of us said, well, you know, we really should talk about fuels. And I said, I know just the guy. So, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, John. It was always fun seeing you and talking to you okay. anytime. So my, I'm John Kingston, the editor at large at Freightways. Please stick around for more of the small fleet and owner operator summit here at Freightways.